0: We invite the public to Tiffin, will be September 15th. And also today, we have uh, Grace Point at Northwood joining us, and so they're kind of piping in today, so as we continue in our series in Romans. So, this series called 8 is is about one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, Romans 8, and in Romans 8, in the passage that we're going to talk about today, some would say is the most important promise... In all the Bible. And uh, they would say that uh, this is the greatest promise for us. Spurgeon said this about one of the verses we're going to talk about. He said, if all things do not always please me, they will always benefit me. This is the best promise of this life. And although it may be one of the most famous passages and maybe one of the greatest promises, this, the verse that I'm talking about that we'll get to today is also maybe one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. So we're going to dive in and we're going to figure that out. Romans 8 reminds us, as as we've been talking, that we live in a fallen world, that we struggle with hardships. We get bogged down in the Christian life. We struggle with hard times or illnesses or suffering. Sometimes it's watching somebody else, a loved one, go through difficulties, and that can kind of oppress us. And when that happens, we can lose our confidence and our joy in the Christian life, and it's like we're going through the motions, and we're really not experiencing the joyful life that God wants us to experience. But there is a confidence available in spite of whatever hardships or suffering that you're going through. There is a joy that the deepest trouble can never extinguish. And the question is, how do we get that? How do we experience that every day in the Christian life? And you experience Christian confidence and joy to the extent that you understand the three truths that we're going to be talking about today out of Romans 8. Three truths, now, but before I say these, before I mention these three truths, I, I want to just tell you, don't just assume what they mean, because all three have a specific context. And if you just walk out of here with those three truths and put your own meaning to them, then... then it's going to be wrong and you're going to think that I'm up here preaching health and wealth and prosperity and that's not what I'm saying so when I say these three truths as we go through them you have to understand the context in which they are written does that make sense are you ready I mean are you ready so here's the three truths I try to put them in a memorable way I will not put them in a poem I tried that once and it was a disaster so I'm just going to give them to you these are three truths, but you have to understand them in the correct context. First is this. Our bad things will turn out for good. Second, our good things can never be lost. And third, our best is yet to come. So hang on as we, we go through these. Our bad things turn out for good, our good things can never be lost, and our best is yet to come. And so our bad things turn out for good. This is a classic verse in Scripture, Romans 8, 28, and it says this, and most of you are familiar with this. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But, in, and this is the main one where you got to get the context right. There are four implications of the context, inside the context of just this one verse. All about our bad things turn out for good. First of all, this promise is only for Christians. So when non-believers walk around and say, well, everything eventually kind of turns out for good. This is not what Paul's talking about. This is not what Romans is saying. This is a specific promise only for believers. Or the way Paul describes believers, first he says, only for those who love God. That's how Christians are described in this passage by Paul. And if you'll remember, this is something that Jesus taught us. The, the greatest command when he was asked that, remember, uh, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so Paul saying this promise is for those who love God. And, of course, most of us here are thinking, well, I love God. Well, maybe not as much as you think. Because Jesus also told us in John fourteen fifteen, he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, our, our, we love God by obeying him. As we love God, it shows up in our life by obedience to God. So that's the first implication. Only for Christians. Second is all things. This whole all things happen to Christians. A lot of people have this misunderstanding that, well, if I become a believer and I love God by obeying him, then nothing bad is going to happen to me. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible is telling us as believers, we should expect hardships. We should expect even persecution. We should expect hardship even because we're believers. Because other people will not like that. So that's not, he's not saying everybody's okay. This all things that Paul uses this term. It's very broad, and and it encompasses good things and bad, but especially the emphasis in this context is suffering and hardship. And what he's saying is God causes even bad things to work out for good for believers. And so we need to get that. Paul's saying even agonizing hardships... That you experience as a believer will be used for your good by God. That's what scripture is telling us. And of course the greatest example of that is Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. He came, God created us, we have all, all sinned and that started with Adam. And all of us have this sin nature in us that causes us to rebel from God so we've all done our own thing we've all violated God's standard of righteousness we've all done wrong the Bible calls that sin so we're all sinners and that alienated us from God and because because God was just that meant that God had to punish us because you have to have punishment you have to punish wrong for there to be justice but God loved us so much he sent Jesus And Jesus lived his life with no sin perfectly, and then he died on the cross for our sins. He paid our payment, and so if we respond to him in belief, in trust, then our sins are paid for. So the worst thing that ever happened was that the Son of God would be tortured to death by his own creation, and that happened. But we see the benefit for all of us that it was done in love, and it brings to those of us who believe this tremendous benefit. So the implication, all things happen to Christians. The third implication here, just in this one verse, is that we tend to underestimate the good that Paul's talking about. And what happens is we sentimentalize this verse when we don't understand what he means by good when people hear good oh god is going to give me good they think money and health and pleasant circumstances that that's the way we sort of define it but paul's talking about something way better than that something for us personally and we see all the time in in this world and I'm not putting this down, it's just an observation. When somebody goes through suffering or hardship, uh, or, or there's a tragic loss, a lot of times you'll find people maybe campaigning to change a law or do this or establish a, a scholarship or something, and, and believers do that and non-believers do that. And it's almost like they're trying to, to take some good Get some good, derive some good out of a a tragic, tragic evil, a loss. And and so they do that. Again, there's nothing wrong with doing that. And they know that's never going to really replace what their loss was. But it'll make them feel that it was a little bit not so much in vain. Like, well, there was a reason or some good came out of it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that is not what Paul's talking about. What Paul's talking about is we experience a personal benefit, that God uses even bad things in our life, even terrible circumstance, even pain in our hearts. God will use that in a believer's life to help us and make us stronger and draw us closer to Jesus and help us to conform to His image. Now so when he says good, what is good? What's the best thing we can experience in this life? What's the best thing that can happen to us? Well, as humans, the best thing we know from God's truth is salvation, that we understand this message Christ died for us, and we believe, we put our trust in Christ alone for our salvation, and we become believers. Okay, so as Christians, we know, hey, the best thing, the best thing that we could wish for for somebody we love is not money or position or friend, it's Christianity, it's salvation. But once we become Christians, then what's the best thing that can happen to us? Well, Scripture's telling us that the best good for us is that we would grow closer and closer to the King, the Savior who died for us. And that's part of that being conformed to his image that we'll get to. And so, This is the best thing that can happen. Now, and and then you've got to kind of square with if that doesn't sound that great to you, then something's wrong. As believers who have been saved by this act of Jesus Christ on the cross, we should be able to recognize that the very best thing that can happen to us our ultimate good is that we grow closer to him because we know that as we grow closer to jesus then we will have the confidence and the joy we will be able to love others like we've never been able to love others before we will have the strength to do that that's our best good and if you're a true follower of jesus The answer that our best good is conforming to Jesus, conforming to his image, that should be enough. Because you see the priority in that. That should be, yeah, that's exactly right. I want to be close to Jesus. God can and will use any situation, even the worst experience, to produce good results in a Christian's life. Paul's not saying... That if you love God, you'll have more good in life than you will bad in life. Not what Paul's saying. And that's often true. It's often true. And when it is true, that's pure grace. But that's not what Paul says here. Paul says he's going to use hard, painful, or difficult circumstances to mold us. To me, the best example of this for us to see it work in our life is marriage. Marriage is kind of weird. I mean, God invented it, so it's a good thing. I'm not questioning that. But two people who, who, have a, who are prone to be selfish sinners, like we all are, are joined together and they merge their lives together and they live together in one house. And then that in, in, inevitably that brings conflict. That has to be resolved. And sometimes that, that just, that's resolved and there's a lot of love there and everything goes good. And sometimes it's a little rougher and people need some tweaks or some counseling to, to get them through some, some rough patches. But think about how marriage, for those of you who are married, think about how marriage changes you. I mean, marriage changes you, right? And as believers, especially if we're married to a believer then that change should be a good change. And God can use this other person in your life, whether it's going smoothly or not going smoothly, or even if, if it's just going terribly, God can use that in a believer's life who's committed to marriage to rock, knock off a lot of rough edges in our life and also develop things in our life like patience, patience, and love, and putting somebody else first, and being less selfish, all those things can happen in our life because of conflict in marriage. God can use that to make us more like Jesus, and he often does. Christians don't need to say that every tragedy is part of God's plan. We don't have to say it that way. We can say that in every tragedy, God is still God, And he moves in all situations to make us more like Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. As I was thinking about this week, I came to this realization that, and this is kind of a a mind blower for me, that God can even use sin in our life. God can somehow work that for our benefit to help us conform. And that's, oh, man, I'm glad you said that, Kevin, because I can do that. I mean, I'm really good at that. You know, that's going to work out really well for me. No, no, that, that, Paul already addressed this when you remember, hey, so shall we sin knowing that God can somehow use it in our lives, knowing that it's paid for? Not only is it paid for, but that we, God can use that somehow to benefit us. And then Paul says in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. He's saying, Paul's saying, no, no, that's the wrong way to look at it. May it never be. He's just pointing out that that God uses our bad things. Our bad, as believers, our bad things will turn out for good. Second promise. Our good things can never be lost. Our good things can never be lost. Next verse. And people memorize verse 28, but really verse 29 helps explain it. So let's continue. Verse 29 says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and, though, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. So 29 is sort of the goal of 28, that we, would, that we are predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, to the image of Jesus, is what he's saying. And, and what he's telling us is God is not promising us better circumstances. God is promising us a better life. And, and there's a difference between those two things. Now, when we bring up predestined and called, all of a sudden there's a... It, it, You may or may not know, there's a whole bunch of theology arguments that that circle around that. And Calvinism and Reformed and Hyper-Calvinism and Extreme Calvinism and this, that, and the other thing. That's really not his intent. But that happens because the Bible teaches a paradox or two truths that seem to contradict, but we know they actually don't contradict if we were smart enough to figure it out. From God's point of view, because He's saying they are both true. And one truth is this that from God's point of view, we believers are chosen, called, predestined before the foundation of the world that we would become believers. So we, that's called election. We get that. But also, second truth, the Bible says that we choose, we respond, we believe in Jesus through faith, we make a decision. To follow him, We're responsible for how we decide about the information we have about Jesus. So we have verses that indicate God has chosen us, that he's called us, predestined us, and then we have verses that say that we're responsible to respond to God's offer. Yes, yes, those are both true. For example, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 1 John 2, 2 says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4, this is a good. this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, Paul doesn't bring up predestined and called in this passage to start a theological debate or even weigh in on a theological debate. His purpose by bringing this up is to comfort us So that we, by communicating to us, the certainty of our being conformed into the image of Jesus. It's a slam dunk. God will do that for us if we are a believer. And one day in the future, we will be fully conformed to the likeness of Christ. One day that will happen. But now, today, God will use all things in our life to start that process. And to help us conform, to help us be more like Jesus. Even bad things will be used by God to help us morph into Him. Strangely, even sin, in a weird way, which we can never excuse, can be used by God for our good. Being predestined is just a, He's just communicating a guarantee that our destiny is forever fixed. Can't lose our salvation. Once we put our faith in Christ, it's a slam dunk. This will happen sooner or later. this will happen. So our bad will turn out for good. you got it? And our good can never be lost. That's exactly right. And then the third one: Our best is yet to our best is yet to come. That's what I want to talk about now. Now, here I, if some of you, some of you who are really into Romans 8 are going, hey, Kevin, you started in verse 28, but actually Luke left off like in verse 18. So what about that? Well, let's go back and grab that because that fits into this point. This is what we're talking about. Let's back up to where Luke ended last week, Romans eight eighteen, where it says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Simple way of saying that, Paul's saying, hey, our present suffering, the hard things that we're going through, is nothing compared to our future glory. This is just a drop in the bucket for eternity. Hang on, this is nothing. It will be worth it. And then he continues in verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For their creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I know that's a mouthful. Here's what Paul's saying. Adam sinned, and because of that, the whole human race fell into sin. And then Paul's pointing out that even nature, even the world, even nature was adversely affected by that. Nature today is not what it was in the garden, not what it ought to be, not the way it was created to be. Now, creation itself is in slavery to corruption. Nature itself is caught in a continuous cycle of death and decay. And the whole universe, as we look out beyond nature, it's all winding down, running down. It's losing more energy than it can generate. There's the second law of thermodynamics and all this stuff. But scientists see this today. Everything in nature wears down and dies. But but God isn't done yet. Creation will be liberated. Here's what he says, continuing in verse 22. For we know... That the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons to the redemption of our body. Even we groan. Here's what I've noticed. I'm in my 50s, and when I came into my 50s, I've turned into a groaner. I don't know how that happened. I mean, I will sit down. If I'm sitting down for too long, like, say, a couple hours, and I get up, I groan. I don't even know how that, when that started. I, and then not only that, when I get up, I either have to work to straighten up, or it's like four steps before I can straighten up. It's like this. Oh yeah, okay. I'm. I, has that happened to anybody else? Is that just me? Do I need to go to a doctor? You know, I've turned into a groaner. That's not now. What Paul's talking about is much more significant than that. Paul's pointing out that hey, we long for getting rid of our sin getting rid of our flesh that bounds us to sin, our our nature to, to move on. So last week, Luke talked about how we've been legally adopted as sons and heirs into God's family, but we haven't yet fully experienced all the benefits of that. We own them, we just haven't lived them out yet. And here's how it continues in verse 24. For in hope we have been saved... But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. It's something in the future. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart's knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here's what Paul's saying there. Sometimes we as believers experience pain that is so deep, so profound, that we turn to God in prayer and, and we're just wiped out and, and we don't even know what to say. Words, words, Cannot express the pain and sorrow in our hearts. I don't know if anybody's ever experienced it, but we're just there, we're just praying, and we're just, we, we don't, words can't express. But when that happens, the Spirit who knows our hearts intercedes for us because He knows the pain in us and He intercedes to the Father for us. That's a promise, a comfort from God. The Spirit intercedes for us knowing the hurt in our heart. The Spirit understands our inexpressible longings that happen as a result of life in a fallen world. And one day we'll no longer live like this. One day we will be glorified. And that brings us now back forward to the last verse I'm going to deal with, which is verse 30. We left off in 29 earlier before I went back. Verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Our best is yet to come. He's saying our best days lie ahead. A day is coming when all of our pain, all of our painful days, they're all behind us. And that hasn't happened yet because we aren't home yet. We are aliens. We are just here temporarily. We are not at our true home. And this life is not all there is. So here's my question What's your issue? What's your trouble? What are you burdened by? What's wounded you? What troubles you to keep you from having peace in your soul? What is it? What's making you depressed? What's robbing you of your joy? what's bogging you down what's overloading you here paul is telling us in romans 8:28 that no matter what you're facing if you're a believer no matter what you're facing no matter what you're going through no matter what you're experiencing god will Use that to help you be more like Jesus. God will use that to conform you, to morph you, to change you more and more into the image of His Son. God will work through the pain that you're experiencing personally to benefit you personally. That's God's promise. And so here's the question. You've just heard these three promises from God that Paul's telling us about. Your bad things will turn out for good, your good things can never be lost, and your best things are yet to come. Are you going to understand that and embrace that and know that as God's truth? and walk out of here in light of that truth? Or are you just going to hear some words from the Bible and walk out and sort of inner life just the way that maybe you came in if you were burdened or or just get back into the routine? Christian, it should, don't, don't be that way. If you're here and you're not a believer, hey, this is what God offers us, but, but don't come. Don't come to Jesus so your bad things are turned out to good or if your good things can't be lost or your best. Come to Jesus because Christianity, the gospel, is true. Jesus really died. He was really the son of God. He really loves you, and he really made a way. Come to him because this message is true. But believer... Christian, have confidence and joy in your life because you know for certain that your bad things will be turned to good. Your good things can never be lost and your best is yet to come because you're not home yet. Let's stand together for prayer.